what we're going to talk about today, I, I don't, I know that this conversation that we're going to start here for the next four weeks, it will, it kind of could feel like it's potential that I, I'm not sure how you will take it, but if it could feel like a spanking, all right? Now, I don't want you to think about me giving you a spanking because that's weird, uh, and we shouldn't do that anymore, and my kids, they don't get spanked, but, but I think once in a while, your pastor needs to stand up and challenge you a little bit and say something hard, and I've been really struggling with this concept for quite a while, and really, in, during the year when we are doing sermon uh, prep, we're generally working through passages of Scripture verse by verse, as you've probably seen, and so we're allowing the, the Word of God to kind of speak through our sermons, um, but these four weeks, the next four weeks, are just me sharing my heart with you on a trend or a problem that I think the church has, and I also think we have as, uh, as individuals and as part of the church, okay? So I'm not, I'm not leaving anybody out. I do think that we are purposeful to work against this, and that includes me sort of reminding you on a regular basis that this is a problem for all of us. Um, I think I, I started to think about this problem, and I'm going I'm gonna, I'm gonna to kind of tell you what it is in just a second, but I started to think about this about three years ago. There was a survey that came out from Barna. Uh, it's a survey group where they uh, survey Christians on a lot of different topics. And one of the topics that uh, they asked about um, Christians, they said, hey, uh, how do you feel about, do you think that it's uh, wrong? I'm going to paraphrase this question, but do you think that it's wrong to share your faith with somebody with the intention of trying to change them from their faith to yours? Okay? So I want you to just process that question and think about how you feel about it for a second. Do you, how do you feel about it, or do you think it's wrong to share your faith with the intention of helping someone transition from whatever faith they have to Christianity? That was the question that was asked. And for most of our history as Christians over the last couple hundred years, uh, I think most of the time people would say, and, and even in this survey, people still said like, at about 97% clip that they, they believe they should be sharing their faith in some way. Okay, that, that was part of being a Christian was to be, like evangelism was part of what it meant to be a Christian. Evangelism just means to share your faith, right? To live it out in front of other people or to be an, uh, um, someone who declares God to the world. Uh, that evangelism was part of your faith, but did you, do you believe that it's wrong to try to share your faith with the intention of uh, switching somebody from where they are to, to following Jesus? And it, the answer had kind of always been pretty much 100%, that's good. We want people to know Jesus, right? That's the goal of sharing your faith, is to let people know Jesus. But this started to shift maybe 10 years ago, maybe five. It's really hard to understand or tell. But, but millennials, so people in their mostly 30s, right, to early 40s, to late 20s maybe, uh, at a 47% rate said that they thought it was wrong to share their faith in such a way that it would would cause someone to switch their faith from one thing to following Jesus. And it's just something that kind of rolls through my head every once in a while, that like three or four years ago, that, that stat kind of woke me up to the idea that there's just this changing concept when it comes to sharing your faith, when it comes to evangelism. And uh, full disclosure, I'm barely, I'm, I'm probably not a millennial, I'm barely a millennial, I'm 40 three years old. So that puts me at the very, very top end of this generation of people, mostly in their 30s. And 
uh, I would say I have probably come up in the church as a teenager in my youth group. We were very evangelistic, okay? So I'm talking, so just if you're, you've been in the church for a long time and you've gone through some of these waves, tracks. Anyone remember handing out tracks? You know, little pamphlets that basically say, hey, you're going to die and go to hell and you need Jesus and you should change and accept Jesus. And we would just like hand these things out, right? Um, that was one method that I learned. Uh, there was another method that we learned called evangelism explosion. Okay, so as a 15, 16 year old, we would go down the street. And, yeah, think about that. Evangelism explosion. It had like fancy colors and the X was really prominent in the logo. It was like 90s, super 90s. You go down the street and you knock on people's door. And when they open up the door, you say, would you mind if I asked you a question? And if they go, sure. You say, if you were to die today, do you know where you would go? That was the beginning of evangelism explosion conversation, door to door, right? Like what kind of psycho shows up at somebody's door and that's the question that they lead with? Like, are you serious? But as a teenager, I loved to argue with people and I loved kind of defending my faith. So I would just argue people into loving Jesus, right? That was my, my thing when we did evangelism explosion. It was like, if they brought up any kind of problem, I would just push right through that, and I'd be throwing scripture at him as quick as possible, and I'd be explaining why that doesn't make any sense, and this is before YouTube existed, or the internet was helpful, like there was no internet, so pretty much it was just like, do you know enough stuff to be able to talk to somebody, and you know, I don't think anyone, and maybe in the history of the world, has ever come to Jesus by losing an argument, but that's what, that's what we were kind of taught to do, right? Um, other, other things I can remember, there was a, a this uh, play that went around uh, called Heaven's Gates, Hell's Flames. This was like turn or burn, like you're, if you die, you're going to be in hell, tormented forever in the eternal lake of fire. You know, in the, in the play, uh, you know, there's a car crash, and these people die, and one is judged and goes to hell, and then one is, you know, able to go to heaven, and the one from hell is saying, well, how can you not share your faith with me? And you're supposed to invite... <laughs> non-Christians to this thing. Like, this is a real good starter. Let's talk about Jesus. Will you come to this play with me where we basically make you scared to not know Jesus? Get the fire insurance on the wall because you don't want to be the one that goes to hell, right? I think we've, we've kind of gone through this weird, like, generational way of sharing our faith. Uh, the church has. And some of it successful and most of it not. Um, to this day, I don't think I use any evangelism explosion when I have a conversation with a real person. And, um, I, don't, I don't think Heaven's Gates, Hell's Flames, if it even exists anymore. I'm like, I don't even want to look it up because it probably does exist like in Alabama or something. Um, I don't think that works, right? And I don't think, uh, you know, these methods, tracks for sure is not a thing. That, I mean, most of the time if you see a track, it's like, it's like in a bathroom. Or like somebody leaves it for a waitress or something. Like it's just like completely disconnected. So I do think there's a lot of people that maybe when they say that they reject the idea of sharing their faith or evangelism, they're rejecting an old model of what it means to kind of argue people into the kingdom or scare people into the kingdom. Or I guess the like idea that they could spray enough tracks out in the world that it would somehow make a difference, right? I don't... When I talk about evangelism, I want you to understand that I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the desire to share our lives with people so that they will know Jesus. Because I think this is a tried and true piece of what it means to be a Christian. And we may have this negative feeling towards this idea of evangelism, but evangelism does not have to look like what it looked like in the 80s and the 90s. 
You know, I know there's a lot of those things coming back. I know, you know, they're trying to bring back every single thing from my childhood and now market it to my kids. And a lot of times I'm a sucker and I go for it. I mean, how many times can they remake Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? There's another one that just came out. I mean, how many times? I, I watch a nostalgia uh, TikTok channel where they just share commercials from the 80s and 90s. Like, this kind of stuff, like, speaks to me, uh, not for evangelism. I think we can put that away. And when I talk about evangelism, I'm not talking about the methods. I'm especially not talking about the methods that we used in a time when people thought differently and in a time where we didn't maybe understand the damage that we were somewhat doing. I'm talking about evangelism in a way that like, we are called to as Christians be the type of people that go and make disciples. We are called as Christians to be witnesses to what Jesus has done. We're called as Christians to live in a certain way that it, it, it shows the world what it looks like to be a Christian. And, and the danger here, and I, I think this is probably why we get a, an answer of 47% of the people would think it was wrong to share your faith in a way that would actually transition someone to being a Christian. I think the danger here is that we start to reject the methods in such a way that we miss the idea that we're still called to be missional in our lives right now, and that naturally, as Christians, we turn inward. Okay, Naturally, as Christians, we turn inward. One of the greatest parts about our church is the community. right? It's the small groups. It's being in relationship with people. It's serving hip-to-hip doing mission together, right? That's one of the best things about this church. Maybe the best thing about this church. Well, it's easy for us to turn inward and be focused on our community in such a way that we miss the idea that there are people who need to know Jesus. And it's not like anyone has sat down and plotted this out. It's a natural thing that happens to all believers. It will happen in your life if you don't fight it intentionally. It will happen in our church if we don't fight it intentionally. It's a problem for us because community is awesome. We have great friendships. We have great deep connections with people. And so it's easy for us to turn into those things and make those the main event. And like I can give you like a a small example, right? Like, uh, you know, if someone were to come and visit our church, is it are they getting warmly greeted by people who are going out of their way to bump into a new person that they don't know? Or are all the people in this church just connecting with their buddies from small group? And this is why I said this could feel like a spanking, okay? I don't, I'm not trying to make you feel bad, but I'm trying to explain to you that if we don't fight intentionally to be missional, it will not happen, right? If our church doesn't fight to be intentionally missional, if we don't as individuals fight to be intentionally missional, it will not happen by accident, And I want to show you just today, I want to root it in in the character of who God is. I want to show you what God was doing when he separated Israel and created a people unto himself. And when he called us to continue that covenant on and what it looks like for the church now to exist. I want to root it in scripture and help you understand where God is coming from and what his heart is. So you can understand that the method is not important. It's the lifestyle and the mission that we're called to. Okay, so the first place I want to go is in Exodus Chapter 19, and I want you to think about what God was doing when he took Israel out of captivity, brought them to the desert, and started to build them into the nation that he wanted them to be. What was the purpose? What was the purpose of taking Israel out and calling them to be a people unto himself? For them to be holy, set apart, something different in the world, completely separated from the world, and something that was meant to 
have a purpose and a mission. What was that purpose? And we find it here in Exodus chapter 19. I just want you to, to kind of hear the words that Moses gives the Israelites as he comes down the mountain and shares what God has shared with him after being on Mount Sinai. So it says, Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. Okay? So this is God explaining to Moses what he wants him to go down and tell the people about their relationship with God, about why God is doing what he's doing, about what the purpose and point is of saving them from captivity and calling them to something. What is the thing he's calling them to? Why is he setting a people apart? Why is there a special people? Why is all this happening? Okay? And he says, You yourselves have seen what I did uh, to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. God starts the conversation by saying, you, you can see that I love you guys. I brought you out of captivity. And you can see what I did to your enemies. Okay? I care about you. I want to start by helping you understand that I care about you, right? That I'm powerful, that you can trust me. This is the basis of our relationship, is that this is a God who you can trust. This is a God who loves you. This is a God who is good, okay? So he kind of lays that out for Moses to share. He says, you've seen it. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. All the whole earth is mine. You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. He says, look, look, I'm taking you guys out to create a holy nation. And what is the other phrase that he used there? A kingdom of... Say it again. Yeah. He calls them to be a kingdom of priests. Now, pull away your, whatever your baggage is with the word priest. Okay? I am not your priest. You know, I don't know what your baggage is if you grew up in a certain tradition, and priest meant something different than what it means. But in this, in this, uh, the way that God is explaining this to Moses, I want you to be a kingdom of ministry, a kingdom of ministers, a kingdom of people who will proclaim the good news of Jesus someday. Right? He's like showing them that there will be this thing that they'll do, that they'll be actually caring for the world around them, that they'll actually be considered holy, set apart ministry-minded people who will reach the rest of the world. His goal with setting Israel apart was to say to the rest of the world that he cared for and loved everyone and to use them to complete his mission. Now, you move forward to Jesus, and he piggybacks on this idea and says, hey, go and share the gospel with people and create disciples and teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you, you know, and I'll be the one to do the work. I'm with you. Always, even to the end of the age. This is the great commission that Jesus gives us. It's the same idea that God was doing with Israel when he first pulled them away from what was happening and, and saved them from slavery, right? And then told them that their goal, their job was going to be to be a nation of priests. They were going to be out there caring for and sharing the love of God with the rest of the world. Now, Israel failed miserably. They got the set-apart piece of this. They set themselves so far apart from the world around them that they couldn't be a kingdom of priests because they wouldn't welcome anyone into the community that God had created. I, I don't know how clearly we always see this, but this is what it looks like to be in many, most churches in our world. 
We're like, we are a set-apart people. And we have a little, in, in New England we call this the frozen chosen. Right? The group of people that are like, hey, this is our people. And you know, if you co- want to come and be part of this church, you better act like a Christian. You better talk like a Christian. You better look like a Christian. We don't actually care if you are a Christian. As long as you behave, then we'll let you be part of what's going on. Very small. We're not going to grow. We're not doing evangelism. We're kind of just happy with what's going on here. The set-apart piece is what Israel focused on and what they crushed out of the park. Israel used all of the law to set themselves apart so significantly that they were almost useless to be kingdoms, a kingdom of priests. But God called them to both be a kingdom of priests and to be set apart. A kingdom of priests and to be holy. The other side of this conversation is somebody who just goes, I'm going to be just like the culture all around me. I'm not going to set myself apart for God at all. I'm not going to honor his word. I'm not going to allow his word to you know, help me make the decisions that I'm going to make in life. And then I'm going to be useless for the gospel because I could set myself, if I don't set myself apart at all, then what good is it for me to be a kingdom or a priest in this kingdom? What am I sharing? Nothing's really changed in my life. I'm an apathetic Christian who, you know, doesn't, doesn't really get it. Nothing's really changed. So what am I sharing? Right? There's these two opposite ends of the spectrum and we cannot fall into either one. We cannot be so much like the culture that we miss the idea that we're supposed to be sharing the gospel. We cannot be so set apart that we miss the idea that we're supposed to be in the trenches with real people. They're going to bring ba- their baggage and their sin and they're, you know, they're going to they're going to rub off on us and we're going to rub off on them and this is what's going to happen in a real relationship. Right? We have to find the middle somewhere where we both honor the idea that we're supposed to be set apart. We want to look like Jesus and we take seriously our I, our idea that we are a kingdom of priests that we actually care about the world around us, that we reach into it, that we actively work to see people know who Jesus is. And guys, this tension, you know, where I think a lot of people are, is they would probably lean towards, I've got my Jesus, and I'm happy with my community, and I don't necessarily want to share, share my faith. I think generationally that's where we are. I think Gen Z maybe has it worse than millennials. Like younger, it gets harder and harder for people to share their faith. And I want us as a church, to keep this in focus because we'll naturally turn inward. You will naturally turn inward. Some of you guys may remember this too. Like, I feel like the further away you get from you being saved or having salvation, the further away you get from the excitement of what it means to share your faith with somebody. You might be thinking, at some point in my life, I did share my faith with a lot of people, and now I kind of don't find myself really sharing my faith anywhere. I'm in that tension at work where I can't really say much, not really being purposeful about creating relationships in my neighborhood. I've had this conversation with family members before and it hasn't gone well, so now I just leave it alone. You know, I've got that friend that I'm not sure about that I just really wish I could get through, but I, I've just kind of given up on what it means to... I think a lot of us have apathy when it comes to being missional. But God, from the very start, separated Israel so that they would be a kingdom of priests and called them to be holy. Right? That this was God's plan all along. That God has called his people to be a nation, a nation of priests. And I want to share with you just one way in which God called Israel to do this because I just think it's the most beautiful, weird thing. In that day and age, to be welcomed into an area, right? So like, let's say you were a Moabite and you wanted to come and be part of Israel. 
Like, for you to move from Moab to Israel was not really a thing that happened, right? You wouldn't necessarily get welcomed into a new community. If you had nothing when you went there, nobody was going to give you anything. If you didn't have relatives or family or anyone there that was going to kind of sponsor you to come in, like, you were just kind of stuck. You were stuck living where you were born and relying on all the resources that were there. And into that culture, God interjects this way of living to the Israelites that I think is so fascinating. God wanted the Israelites to look so much different when it came to welcoming outsiders into their community, okay? And I'm going to share with you just one kind of crazy way that I just absolutely think is so fascinating. And I love the heart of God behind this, right? That God would call his people to act like this so that the outsider, the orphan, the widow, the person with nothing can find their way into the community and be part of what's, what's going on. Because I think God, not only does he call us to be a nation of priests, he wants us to be generous and attractive. I know that sounds crazy, but as a church, he's called us to be generous. So just, just take a look at what it says. Uh, this is from Leviticus 19, right smack dab in the middle of all the rules and laws and things that the Israelites are supposed to do, is this funny little verse that doesn't make any sense. And it, it's, would, if the Israelites were to get this, this would actually change the way that they look throughout the entire world. People from all over the world, when they weren't able to find refuge in the place that they lived, or when they had nothing, or when they were feeling like an outsider, could always find a home in Israel if the Israelites would take this seriously. And here's what it says. When a foreigner resides among you and in your land, do not mistreat them. Because why? Because mistreating somebody, taking advantage of somebody, was the day. That was what happened in every area of that time. You were vulnerable. Right? You were somebody who could be taken advantage of and used, bought, sold, put into slavery. There, all of these things could be possibilities for you if you weren't protected by a community, if you found yourself as an outsider, if you were a foreigner, if you were a traveler. All of these things could be uh, your, what would happen to you if you didn't find your way. So it says, when your foreigner resides among you and in your land, do not mistreat them. This is God telling Israelites, don't mistreat somebody who doesn't fit somewhere else. Right? Don't mistreat them. Don't take advantage of them. Don't see what you can get from them. Right? He says, the foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. That's so crazy. Right? It makes no sense at all. These crazy people who have separated themselves from the culture, all around them, they eat weird, they dress weird, they do all kinds of weird stuff. They're saying, hey, this person who comes in who knows none of your customs, who's going to offend everybody, who doesn't understand what it means to be a Jew... Just welcome them in. Just treat them like one of your native born. Just be like, well, that's so-and-so. He's just like that, right? Like, just make space for the oddball, the foreigner, the orphan, the widow, the person who's disconnected. Just make space for them and allow them to be part of your community. This would have been, like, absolutely transformational. But this isn't the part that I love. He says, love them as yourself. For you were once foreigners in Egypt. And I am the Lord your God. And again, he reminds them, hey, I want you to love them as yourself. We'll one day see Jesus build on this. This ideology right here, this will be part of Jesus' core teaching, to love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt, and I am the Lord your God. He says, hey, you used to be the one who's disconnected, the one that was lost, the one that didn't have a place to be. You were in Egypt as a slave. I want you to welcome people in because you know what that's like. You've been there. Like, I, our church, I pray this all the time, that we do not become a country club for Christians. 
I do not want us to become a country club for Christians. And I think that naturally that happens. We're coming up on our five-year anniversary, and I think five years is just about enough time for us to need to be reminded of the idea that we're not a country club for Christians. We're not a museum. We don't expect people to come in and act right and have it all together. We say and believe, and I think most of you guys, if I said, hey, what's our mission as a church? You would say we're an imperfect church for imperfect people. That's our number one value. It's not our mission statement. Our mission statement is always in pursuit of Jesus and the people he loves. right? But you would probably mistake our mission statement with we're an imperfect church for imperfect people. Why? Because I'm such a mess, right? So I'm, I'm such a hot mess. And you're like, if that guy can be our pastor, then all of us are welcome here. Sort of. It's important to us. And we make a way for people to come and be part of this, even when they don't act like they're supposed to. And even when they bring their baggage and stuff with them, we, we make room and we try to welcome people in no matter what they come with. And I've been in conversations with people Let's say, hey, you need to disciple this person out of this church, right? You need to make sure that they understand that they need to get with the program or they got to go. To which I've, in that conversation, lovingly said, hey, there's probably another church down the road that's better for you. That we take this very seriously and it's very important to us to be an imperfect church for imperfect people, right? And five years is probably enough time for us to, to kind of remind ourselves we need to be a hospital, People show up bloody. They're in a car crash. Things aren't going well in their life. They're bringing their baggage with them. And we are, we are healing people on the fly. That's what we're called to do as Christians, to heal people on the fly. This looks a lot more like a, a battlefield hospital than it does a museum or a country club. Right? We are welcoming people in with whatever baggage they have and whatever damage has been done to them and whatever they've struggled through and we're saying you are welcome here let's talk about who jesus is that's the goal for us that we would be as and i love this 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 idea or this concept which i did not create but this idea that we would be wounded healers that our job in this hospital is to be healing people on the fly as we even share our own stuff with each other and heal each other Right, that our relationship with Jesus would be the core of what it looks like to be always being called into and healed into who God wants us to be and offering that to other people and welcoming people with their baggage and on the fly working with them so that they can understand the gospel. That's what it looks like to be a church. And that might not make us the biggest church in the entire world. That might not make us the richest church in the entire world. Those are things that, honestly, that's not our goal. Our goal is to reflect Jesus into this world and to be the kind of people that understand our call is to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, to be set apart and to be hip deep, knee deep, right into the muck with people working with and helping them get to where God has called them to be. That's what it looks like for us to be the church. And I know it's easy to neglect this because, again, we naturally turn inward. Over a couple of years, we start to turn away from the goal that God has given us. And we have to be intentional about reminding ourselves, this is what it looks like to be a church, right? This is not a church where you just sort of come and socialize and go home. We're calling you to be a wounded healer on a regular basis as God would have had Israel be and as Jesus would have called us to be. Right, that's what it looks like. And here's the, the beautiful thing that I was, I was starting to mention here. 
but what God called them to do. He says, okay, so I want you to be this like kingdom of priests. I want you to be set apart, a holy nation. I'm going to ask you to treat foreigners like you're native born, okay? But here's the little trick. He, he gives them like a physical thing that they can do to create this generous and attractive community to the world around them. And this is, uh, again, Leviticus 19, same, same chapter that we just read, just a little bit further uh, down. He says, when you reap the harvest of your land, okay, weird, that we're talking about loving people like they're native born. And then, he, by the way, when you reap the harvest of your land, don't reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. He's like, hey, I, I can't imagine a farmer doing this. this we, we, I just spent a couple days, our kids are out of town. My, my parents took them on an Alaskan cruise. I know, I'm like, hey, what about us? Uh, so, sorry, Mom, if you're listening to this later. Uh, so me and Marty, we, we went to this uh, little Airbnb. It's, it was in the middle of nowhere, farmland everywhere, right? Uh, it was a, a grain silo that had been uh, turned into an Airbnb. I highly recommend if anyone's looking for a nice getaway in the country. It's close enough to Rochester that you can still do some stuff or go to a restaurant or whatever. But, like, it's in the country, right? Like, it's just corn and cows, right? I can't imagine one of these farmers, right? not getting every piece of corn on their land when they, when they reap. They're so perfectly, like perfectly laid out and planted. And, you know, they spend so much time making sure that it's healthy and that, you know, everything's going to work out. And when they get to actually reaping, they want every inch of that field, right? They want all of it. And God tells the Israelites, hey, don't glean to the edges of your property. I want you to leave the corners of your property, of your harvest. I want you to just leave that out there. Don't take it all. Why? What is, what is the purpose of this? This is a crazy little thing. Like, if I told you, okay, guys, like, don't, don't take all the way to the edges of your property, you'd be like, what are you? Like, we don't farm corn, right? It probably wasn't corn for them. He says, don't go over your vineyard a second time, not just your field. Leave some grapes on the vine. Don't pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them. Why? Why should we leave them? Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. Deuteronomy, same thing. When you're harvesting your crops and you forget to bring in the bundle of grain from your field, don't go back and get it. Leave it for foreigners, orphans, widows. Then the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do. When you beat the olives from the olive, tree, olive trees, don't go over the boughs twice. Leave the remaining olives for the foreigners, for the orphans, for the widows. When you gather the grapes in your vineyard, don't glean the vines after they are picked. Leave the remaining grapes for foreigners, for orphans, for widows. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. And that is why I'm giving you this command. And I think as we focus on what it looks like to be a community that's on mission, we need to realize that if we don't leave the corners of our fields and leave some grapes on the vine, I, stick with me for a second. I know you're not a farmer. Then we won't be welcoming or leaving room for the foreigner, 
person who doesn't connect with God, who doesn't know what it is to be part of a church, the person who doesn't fit in most churches, the person who's not sure about what it looks like to have a relationship with God. Like, we don't think about this all the time and keep it first and foremost in how we live. I think we're missing it. And it's so easy to do. Look, I'm a, I'm a middle-aged, nerdy dad. It would be so easy for me to go months just filling my house with people who I know believe in Jesus in ignoring relationships with non-believers in my life. It would be so easy for me to just protect my family, my kids, and make sure that what they experience is this like smooth path of all Christians in their life. I think a lot of us have made a huge mistake in not raising our kids to be around non-Christians. That we've just created a like protective bubble around our lives to make sure that we don't ever become uncomfortable. You know what that is? It's a country club. You pay your due, and they take care of you and make sure you're comfortable. You have your tea time. You have your lunch. You show up at the pool, right? Your entire life is built around hanging out with people who are the same socioeconomic status as you, the same race as you, the same Christian status as you. You spend time with the people that you most easily connect with to make yourself comfortable. And God has not called us to do that at all. He says you need to create an attractive environment that welcomes people into your community. And he goes, what it looks like is actually generosity. When you leave the corners of your fields un unplowed and you leave the extra amount there, right? You are being generous. You could tell the most generous people in Israel were the ones with the widest corners left. I would have been a very generous person just because I'm very inefficient at, like I would have had all kinds of little spots of food you could have picked up after me just because I would have stunk at it, right? But the most generous people were the ones creating the most amount of space for people to come and be part of what it is. And generosity is more than what you give to your church, right? Generosity is how you share your life. Great. Some give to the church, some don't give to the church, some give a lot, some give a little. How much of your life are you sharing with non-believing people? I know, this is where it starts to feel like, a, like, a, like I'm yelling at you, I'm not. I'm challenging you. Yes, you can go months without being around non-Christian people. But God has called us to share our entire lives, our livelihoods, what we have in a generous and attractive way to draw people into relationship with him. It should be our goal as believers to surround ourselves with people that don't know who Jesus is so that we can influence them and let them know what it looks like to know Jesus. And I know you may have even felt uncomfortable with that phrase, to influence somebody. I'm not saying that we leverage our relationships with non-believers to make sure that they do exactly what we want. I'm saying we share a very true reality of our lives with people because we are actually in relationship with them. I think there's so many Christians that don't have any relationships with non-believing people. How are they supposed to reach anyone? I mean, we have to, have to be working on relationships with non-believers. So, the idea as a church that one of our values is that we are passionate about people who aren't here yet is rooted in the idea that people who aren't here yet don't have a voice in this church unless we are actively thinking about them when we make decisions as a church. 
Like sometimes we make decisions that doesn't make everybody happy, doesn't make their family unit happy or their whatever. And oftentimes it's because we're trying to value people who aren't here yet. They don't have a voice. They're not believers. They're not here fighting for what they see or what they hope for. We have to do it for them. It's part of what we do as leaders in this church. We are always thinking about what it looks like to reach people who aren't here yet. They're not here yet in their faith with Jesus. They're not here yet in acting like a Christian. They're, they're not even like physically here yet because they're not here. Right? We often have to think about what it means to reach those kinds of people and make decisions for those kinds of people. And we just say it outright. We just tell you ahead of time that we're going to frustrate you once in a while because we're going to make a decision for an unsaved person that you don't like. You just got to be okay with it. And we invite you into the same way of thinking in your own life. We're passionate about people who aren't here yet. So you're like, okay, man, maybe give me a couple ideas on what to do because I don't know. All right, so here we go. Let me give you a few ideas. First, pray for lost people by name. Who would you be praying for right now to have faith if you were going to begin praying for lost people by name? And I, I did have one guy challenge me one time. You can't call them lost. You can't say that people are lost. No, listen, Jesus uses this terminology himself. Right? He came to seek and save the lost. That's our mission as well. So are you praying for, by name, a lost person in your life? A coworker? a neighbor, a family member, a friend? Do you have a relationship with somebody who's lost? And are you actively praying that God would open a door and allow you to have a conversation with them? Pray for a lost person by name. That will often change the way that you think enough to start you down the path of being actively evangelistic in how you live. Right? To just have relationships with people that you care about, that you're praying for, that you want to see know Jesus. The second idea that I have for you is share your whole life. You don't have to be perfect. Don't act like you are. That's weird and no one likes it. <laughs> Invite them into your homes. Let them be around your children. Spend time creating relationships for the sake of the relationship. Right? Welcome people into your whole Life. If you are truly a disciple of Jesus, when you invite a non-believer into your life, you're going to be a weirdo to them. You're doing all kinds of weird stuff that doesn't make any sense to them that they have no reverence for. Right? Invite them into sharing your whole life with them. And this is just something that challenged me recently. Like, do I put on a front and make it look a certain way, or do I just let people come in and be part of our lives and in that way, share the gospel through the way that I, that I live. I do believe that sort of millennials and Gen Z, so like 40 and down, man, for them to be part of your life and see you actually living this authentically is like everything. Like I, I think most people who have a negative outlook on who Jesus is or, or the church generally have that because of some hypocrite in their life who talked about Jesus and then lived like they didn't know who Jesus was. So live it out and share it with people. You don't have to be Billy Graham. 
Just be real. Right? Share your own story, your own faith testimony. One of the really interesting things about Gen Z is that even more than millennials, it said that they are actually more open to and interested in hearing people's story and hearing about life change that comes from knowing Jesus. These are two ways to share your faith that it's not evangelism explosion. You're not knocking on the door and going through a script, right? But you're sharing your whole life. And the third idea, which I just kind of talked about, was be authentic. If you can't be, if you're not an imperfect person, right? who can share their imperfect life with people, you will not get anywhere with anyone nowadays. Be authentic. Just be who you are in the presence of people who need to see Jesus on display. And then lastly, we have to actually, this is actually a point. If you're in the app and you're following along, I I really wrote this down this way. Actually, for real, truly, really care. And here's the spanking, right? I think there's a lot of us who don't, if we're being honest, we're apathetic about the salvation of people that we know. Just just be honest for a second. Just let it sink in. That we're apathetic about the salvation of people that we know. And I don't mean that you shouldn't be apathetic because of, you know, eternal torment in hell. I mean that the best possible version of life is knowing Jesus. In this world. That the best possible eternity comes from knowing Jesus. And if we really believe that, right? If we really truly believe that, that that's true, then we are monsters for not willing to share that. Like, just let it sink in for a second that somebody that you know might miss out on knowing Jesus in this life and might miss out on eternity with him forever because you were apathetic about sharing your faith. And I wouldn't limit God to say that it was just because of you that they didn't know Jesus. Of course, God can do anything and he would reach that person if they were going to be reached. But how can we live with apathy for lost people in our lives? Like how in the world can we get to a place where we don't care about the salvation of people in our lives? We have to actually truly care about them and about their life, and their eternity. And yes, that should drive us to share our faith. And if you feel apathetic about this, then repent of that apathy. Lay it out there in your relationship with God and say, God, help me see people like you do and help me reach people the way that you want me to. Because he has called us to be a nation of priests and a holy nation. All right. You're going to get four weeks of this, so just buckle up, okay? Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you that you've given us a vision to reach lost people. And not in a weird way. Not in a way that doesn't work anymore, God. You've called us to live this out in front of people, to put this on display because it's authentic, because it's who we are. And God, even now, as we think about praying for lost people, as we think about influencing and having a relationship and being in a relationship with lost people, God, would you just bring to mind people that you've already uniquely positioned us to make a difference in their lives, God? And would you start to help us have your heart for them in the way that we pray for them, in the way that we care for them, in our empathy, in our mercy for them, God, in the fact that we truly care about their life now and their eternity. Jesus, thank you that 
You have called us to live in such a way in this community that we are generous and it is attractive to the world around us who does not know you. God, would you bring lost people here so they can know what it looks like to know the gospel? And God, would you do that not just here, but in our living rooms and our dining rooms and at the mailbox and at the bus stop and at work around the water cooler, God, would you just give us a ministry of reaching out and sharing our faith with people around us because we love them the way that you do. Would this be a place where outsiders, orphans, widows, foreigners, God, would just find a home? We ask that you would do that through this community. In Jesus' name, amen.